All right, good morning. All right, it's good to see everyone. We have a lot of text to walk through in Numbers. I did not finish chapter 12. I didn't start chapter 12 last week. So we need to briefly talk about chapter 12. And then our focus will be on chapters 13 and 14 this morning, dealing with uh, these spies who go into Canaan to really to encourage the Israelites. That's, that's the intent of this, this, uh, this purpose is to strengthen their faith. It's not even really just a reconnaissance mission that the spies going into Canaan was, was something that the Lord was allowing to take place that should have built up the faith of the Israelites rather than producing them fear, uh, the response of unbelief that cultivated grumbling again. And so every time we find ourselves dropping in on narrative, it seems like in numbers, we find the Israelites grumbling. And so even to, to begin in chapter 12 rather than 13 today, there's actually very much a connection. Uh, we, we've already, we saw last week the Israelites grumbling about God's provision. The Lord indeed has been good to Israel and they still can find every reason to complain about that. They want more variety in their diet. And, and so... In judgment, the Lord gives them what they ask in a miraculous way, demonstrating God's power. He gives them meat to eat, and he did so for one month. And again, just to recognize that God's blessing on the Israelites that, you know, he, he told Abraham at, in the Abrahamic covenant, when he, he tells them, I'm gonna, you're going to be the father of many, you know, you, even consider the stars, you know, to count the stars, that's how numerous your descendants will be. Well, here we are, we find ourselves in numbers with 600,000 men already who are tired of manna. So you're talking about a month-long feeding of millions, two million perhaps individuals, upwards, more than two million perhaps. And it's not just one meal either. It was he's going to feed them for an entire month. And so it's an act of judgment because uh, there is a, there's a plague there's a, that breaks out in light of eating the quail. And many die in light of that. And so that's, that's where we left in chapter 11. Often you'll see the Israelites grumbling and complaining. The Lord judging them in their sin and Moses interceding on behalf of the people to the Lord and the Lord hearing Moses' intercession. And really, uh, that, that's, a, that's an outline for many of the events in, in Israel's history. And that's exactly what's going to happen in chapter 12. And on a smaller scale, we're only talking about Aaron and, and Miriam. But that's, that's the outline for even chapter 12. You're going to see grumbling. God responds, God judges, Moses intercedes, and God hears Moses' intercession. So that, that's the outline of chapter 12, and interesting that that really will, will serve as the outline for, for what takes place in, in 13 and 14 as well. So let me begin in prayer, and we'll walk through these, these passages. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning. God, we have much to praise you for. We'll even sing and, and just a little bit. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God, may it be quick on our lips to, to bless you uh, in the midst of 
every season, whatever you ordain, whatever you allow, whatever you bring about in our lives. God, may we know you to be faithful. May we know you to be good. And may we take great comfort in your power. And may all that lead us to respond in faith with obedience. May we learn from the unbelief of the Israelites as we walk through these events in numbers. So we pray that you would be glorified through our study this morning. Uh, We do love you and thank you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so real quick, let's just look at a few highlights of chapter 12. Lowlights and highlights of chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron, just look at verses 1 through 3. These are prominent individuals in Israel. They've just seen grumbling produce God's judgment. And so you'd think they would be tempted not to go and do likewise. But in fact, that's exactly what we have again, is another case of grumbling. And this time it's Miriam and Aaron. So verse one, you read, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now real quick, a discerning reader, I think, would identify this. What, what's the issue? What's, what's, what's at play here? What, what do Miriam and Aaron really have an issue with in chapter 12? What's the presenting problem? I'll go backwards. What's the presenting problem? What do they appear to be offended by? Yeah, okay. So, so Moses' wife. Is that really the issue? No, it's what's going on here is, I mean, we're important too. Uh, you know, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. So, so they're grumbling and complaining about this unique servant, Moses, this unique relationship, fellowship that, that the Lord has with Moses. And so, so they take issue with this and the Lord hears it. There's an interesting verse that follows. You know, if you think, who's the human author of the Pentateuch? You know, Moses. So then here in verse three, you read, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. So this very well could have been like an editorial comment later from Joshua to to point out the motivation behind Moses' lack of response to the Lord. Miriam and Aaron, they're complaining about Moses. There's other times just in the last chapter where the Israelites are complaining to God about God. And so Moses goes to God with their complaints. You know, he goes before the Lord about their complaints. Here, Miriam and Aaron are complaining about Moses. And Moses, he could have in a righteous way, here they go again, Lord, even Miriam and Aaron are grumbling. You know, but he's not this snitch, this tattletale in a way. He, he trusts the Lord with this. He doesn't, he doesn't go to the Lord with Miriam and Aaron's issue. The Lord hears their, their grumbling and the Lord responds. And, and so you read of the Lord's response. Uh, suddenly, verse four says, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. And so here God really puts them in their place, mindful, reminding them of his sovereign care over the Israelites. And he has chosen 
Moses. And so while certainly there are other prophets, certainly there are others who, um, who, he, who, hear, uh, who the Lord speaks through, but look at what he says in verse six and seven. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Have you no fear of God is the question here. How would you be comfortable speaking against my servant Moses? Uh, to speak against him would be to speak against me. And so Miriam and Aaron are judged for their grumbling. You'll see that Miriam is struck with leprosy. That's how the chapter, um, that's what happens next in chapter 12. And so in light of the Lord's judgment upon Miriam, Aaron pleads with Moses, Moses, do something. Moses intercedes before the Lord in, in his judgment upon Miriam. Moses cries out, verse 13 says, Oh God, please heal her, please. Um, and so the Lord indeed does hear because she will be healed of her leprosy. Um, verse 15 says, Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So last week, where we began in chapter 10 was with this summary statement about now that they've left, there's excitement in the camp, they've left Sinai, they're headed to the promised land. And so uh, in verse, verse 12 of chapter 10, it said, And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So that verse 12 that they settled in the wilderness of Paran is really this summary statement of what you read about in chapters 10 and 11 and 12. Because look where we end at the end of chapter 12 after Miriam is struck with leprosy and then healed. This is where they are. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. So now we're ready to jump into chapters 13 and 14. Um, Real quick, if, if it's even like helpful, I drew a map. Now, I, I did not draw a map, but I, I linked to a map. Right now, that is not our map. But um, <laughs> let's see here. Might just be helpful for us. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, so if you're thinking of, you know, this, this journey up to Paran, you know, here's where they are down... Somewhere in this Sinai Peninsula is where Mount Sinai, you know, was. So then on this journey, when they have left Mount Sinai, they're he headed up into the wilderness of Paran. And so then if you're able to see that where that arrow ends on this trek up into the wilderness of Paran. Oh, thank you, Larry. That's, that's fantastic. So Kadesh Barnea, this is, this, this is where they are now as they have camped in the wilderness of Paran. And so now, that's where we find ourselves in chapter 13. There, these spies are going to be sent into Canaan, and, and the people are still here uh, 
awaiting this report from the spies as they go up into Canaan. So then let's go ahead and look at that next map real quick, just to kind of trek through. So this is where they are, Kadesh Barnea. And so the trek that we're going to read about, this 40-day occupation, this, this uh, espionage that takes place, this 40-day journey of these 12 spies begins down here with the people in Kadesh Barnea, and they're going to go all the way up. If you look at that top of the map, that Labo Hamath, that's like modern-day Lebanon, that's how far this, this trek is going to take all the way through um, the land that God is going to give them. And so they're going to trek all the way up, probably upwards of 250, 300 miles perhaps of, of journey over these 40 days to begin down in Kadesh Barnea and then to go up through the land and then to, to go all the way up to Labo Hamath and then back to give their report. And so that's what, that's what we're going to be reading about. And I think, like, I know that's small, but I might just go ahead and just leave this up here as we walk through the text, just to think about where, where these spies are journeying through as, as they go. So here we go. Let's jump in then to chapter 13. And I should note, this is a very monumental event in the nation of Israel, in the Old Testament, in the scriptures. Because what we're going to read in chapters 13 and 14 is great offense against God. You have these two faithful servants and these 10 who are characterized by unbelief and these 10 tempt and lead the nation into unbelief. And so the events that unfold in chapters 13 and 14 are repeated throughout the scriptures. So we read about it uh, and in fact, there's some repetition even in the text between the different testimonies of different individuals. But then later in Numbers, Moses is again going to bring up this event because of how offensive this is to God, to deny, the, to reject, to ignore the promises of God, to deny the goodness of God, to fail to identify God's power in this they, they are characterized by unbelief. So Moses brings it up again in Numbers 32. In Deuteronomy, it is, it is summarized in chapter 1 as, as Moses walks through the events that unfolded in Numbers. Several Psalms spend quite a bit of time interacting with Numbers 13 and 14. So Psalm 95, Psalm 106. Even the prophets speak of what takes place in Numbers 13 and 14. So we find it in Amos. Then in the New Testament, you know, we talked about 1 Corinthians 10 last week, but uh, the unbelief that takes place in these chapters, Paul brings up to, to be an example to the Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The author of Hebrews in chapters 3 and 4, he speaks to this event to warn of unbelief and, and the consequence of unbelief. You will not enter into the rest. So, so believe in God's promises so just a foundational section of scripture that we would do well to identify the problem and not respond in a similar way. May we be characterized by belief. May we uh, uphold God's promises, cling to God's promises, informed by God's character that he is indeed good, that he is able, that he is all powerful. And so we can trust him. So our right response is belief, unlike the, the people of Israel. 
So here we go. Chapter 13, you have a little bit of an outline of of these two chapters on your handout. I'm going to summarize much of the first 16 verses by just saying that we have the 12 spies identified here. As you read through the names, you would only recognize, well, at first glance, you'd only recognize one name, Caleb. But, but Joshua is here as well. So Caleb's in verse 6. Joshua is in verse 8. As you read verse 8, you'll see, though, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. Well, that's Joshua, the son of Nun. Look down at verse 16. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Okay, so the, the 12 spies are are listed here in these first 16 verses. Look at verse one though, because this is going to be important. Um, Well, verse one and one through three, probably. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. Just pause there to recognize there's misunderstanding, I would think, by the people in a way of, of why God allows for this. Because how might they finish this sentence? If God was to say, send men to spy out the land of Canaan so that... That's right. That's right. Yeah, is this a good plan, bad plan kind of mentality of? Is this, is this going to be an easy thing? Is this going to be a hard... You know, that's kind of what they're thinking. That they're determining whether or not this is a good option. Whether or not um, they ought to obey God's promises. Now, God is saying, here's the land I'm giving you. And you're going to go in to see the land that I'm going to give you. So send men, verse one, 2 says, to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. So even in this, this is certainly instruction from the Lord to Moses, but in Moses recording this here, he's also starting this whole story with, man, you've got to cling to God's promises. You've got to be committed to the faithfulness of God in this because he is going to bring about his promises. I think there might be this assumption that God's promised it, so it's going to be easy. That's not the reality. This is going to be a difficult thing. It's going to require many difficulties of them. They've already experienced many of these difficulties, but the Lord is going to fulfill his promise. And so unbelief and doubt, that's just going to produce um, judgment. Okay, so verse two, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man everyone a chief among them. So Moses did. He, he sent them from the wilderness of Paran. And with that, let's jump down then into verse 17. You guys follow along. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, 17 through 20. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, go up into the Negeb and go up into the hill country. So Negeb down here, They're, they start here go up into Negeb and go into the hill country. Verse 18, and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time of this was the season 
of the first ripe grapes. Okay, so they're, they're told to explore the land. They're told to identify the people. Just for observation's sake, kind of answer some of these questions for me. When he says, uh, see what the land is, um, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak. What's the answer there? Strong, okay. Whether they are few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad. Great. Thank good, Rick. Great. Whether the, but no, it, does, it says it was good, but, but to say it's great is, is to recognize the God's blessing on display. It's great land. So it's good. Whether the cities they dwell in are camps or strongholds. Well, they're strongholds, we'll see. Whether the land is rich or poor, it's rich. Uh, so, so they're going into a land that is full of blessing. So that's what they're to do. They're to go in. So verse 21 tells us they go. They went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zen to Rehob near Lebo Hamath. So there you go. At the end of verse 21, that's how you see how far north this trek went. That began down there. there. Begin at Kadesh Barnea. They go all the way up to Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and they came to Hebron. Pause for just a second with a little bit of Old Testament history. Why might this be a source of great encouragement for these 12 spies as they stop in Hebron? Anybody think of something that would be there? Abraham. Abraham. So Abraham and Sarah are buried there. And so there, there's land already that, that Abraham had acquired uh, and so, so you think, man, God's promises are surely going to unfold. He has told us this land he's going to give us. Here we are in Hebron, and Abraham and Sarah are buried here in, in Hebron. And so you, you'd think that even God's faithfulness would, would uh, be on their mind as, as they journey through Hebron. Okay, so then some individuals are listed, which we know nothing about. Ahiman, Shishai, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zone in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eskel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. And that place was called the valley of Eskel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Okay, so they've been given instruction to go. They've been obedient to this instruction. They've gone. They're, they're finding out answers to these questions. And um, they find that the people are, are great. In fact, they come across some greatly sized men. I mean, there are some big individuals, these, these descendants of Anak who are there. And so they, they explore and um, they, they see what they need to see, this should have only encouraged them. That wow, God's power is going to overcome these obstacles and we are going to inherit this blessed land. That should be on the lips of 12, but it's not as we know. Okay, so we're ready then to, to move into verse 25. They've gone on this 40-day quest and they return, verse 25 says, they return after 40 days. And again, 
anywhere from 200 and something to 400 miles perhaps because I mean you're not just you know this this straight bird's eye view shot they're they're gonna they're gonna journey around where they're headed so so there's a lot to this this trek they, they've gone hundreds of miles in these 40 days and now they're back from the this 40-day quest and they're going to give a report and I know that this is quite familiar to many but but let's just think carefully about really what what is going on here beginning in verse 26 they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land and they told him we came to the land which you sent us it flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit however the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large and besides we saw the descendants of Anak there the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev the Hittites the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Well, we do well to recognize that this report is entirely accurate at this point. We are going to hear some reporting, maybe more uh, commenting later that is not accurate. But here, everything is, is true. Maybe there's some level of pessimistic tone to the whole like, uh, however, verse 28, but uh, not, not entirely. I, I, think that, um, I think you're just seeing a faithful testimony to what they've been told to find out in those verses prior. You know, see what the land is. See what the people are like. And that's exactly what they're told. Here's what the land's like. Here's some grapes from Eskel. Uh, I mean, this land flows with milk and honey. I mean, it is blessed. And the people, they, man, they're big. And there's many. In fact, you got the Malachites. You got the Hittites. You got the Canaanites. You know, and you, you know, the descendants of Anak. You know, those guys are guys are mountainous. Okay, so verse 30, super helpful here to see everything that's gone on was accurate, and you can kind of even sense some nervous uh, listeners because Caleb enters in in verse 30 and quiets the people before Moses. Verse 30 tells us, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it for we are well able to overcome it says Caleb I mean what what confidence there where where's the confidence though for Caleb it's not in anything other than the Lord Caleb is confident in God's faithfulness confident in God's goodness confident in God's ability to carry out what he's promised and so Caleb says yes the land is great yes the people are many yes they're big let's go take it Let's take what the Lord has given us. Again, think of verse 1 of 13. Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. As we'll see, it, it appears that Caleb and Joshua very much convinced of this. This is the land that the Lord is giving us, so let's go take it. These other men are thinking, this is going to be hard, and these people are many, and they're going to wipe us out. This does not look like a good plan. They're trusting in their own might. They're not trusting in the Lord. So Caleb's, Caleb's encouragement is needed and Caleb's encouragement is not received. Verse um, 
Verse 30, you see great faith, then you don't see any, anything else from the others in verse 31 that characterizes great faith. Verse 31 says, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So, if we summarize the report earlier as entirely accurate, how would you summarize their, their, their comments here after Caleb said, man, in light of what we've just heard, let's go. Let's take this land. And then they, they say, man, slow down here. The, the, if we go up against these people, they're stronger than we are. So they give this bad report. That, almost, that helps inform the type of report we're getting. This is not an accurate report. What, how do they describe this good land? It devours its inhabitants. That is not a, a land flowing with milk and honey. I, you know, it is not a blessed land. Now, here's something that's still kind of developing in my mind. I'm not sure that I'm entirely like settled here. Maybe some of you already are. I have oftentimes referred to this passage as an accurate history of the sons of Anak. Because even when we start talking about Goliath, I've sometimes said, and, and apparently he's the descendant of Anak and Anak, the, they're, they're descendants of the Nephilim. Look who's giving this report though. These guys are lying, right? I, this might be hyperbole here. We saw some tall guys. I mean, they're so tall. It's like they're the sons of, they're descendants of the Nephilim. Where did the Nephilim pop up in biblical history? Pre-flood. Pre-flood. And after. Yeah. And after. And after? And after? Okay, where, where is that? I'm sorry, I did not. Genesis, it's, it says an Ephraim were there and after. Does it? So see, look at that. I'm saying I didn't develop in my mind, but as I was reading through some of uh, the commentators, they're even pointing out, I'm not entirely convinced that they are being true about this, but I, I failed to realize that there's another cross-reference with them after the flood. Um, that's interesting to think through if, you know, they're destroyed at the flood. Um, but, uh, okay, so they're there later, perhaps, but again, this, it's not true that the land uh, devours its inhabitants. They're, they're making good land look bad. And then they say, these guys are so tall. Perhaps there's some hyperbole going here to describe them, but, but uh, I'm gonna need, I may be off on that too with the, the other cross-reference you're mentioning. But uh, their testimony is untrue. It is not accurate. It is um, a bad report, in fact, is what 32 says. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out. I guess Genesis 6-4. Genesis 6-4. Um, so I guess I just was thinking that was pre-flood. But, uh, well, it's possible that Noah's daughters-in-law might have possibly through their ancestry pre-flood, might have, their genetic traits could have been carried through after the flood, which would explain the emergence of a quasi-Nephilim for lack of a better term. So that's just speculation, but I might explain because that's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, 6-4 is pre-flood, is my point. Um, 
And it says, and afterwards. Oh, oh, the verse says, and after. Oh, the Nephilim were on the earth in these days and also afterward. Oh, man. Whew. Yeah. James translates the giants, so there's room for something. Sure, when you think. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I got you. Um, you know by the account of David, how much not. Oh, I, yes. And you know, you're even given specific height of Goliath. So I'm not talking. That, uh, that that's just some hyperbole there about Goliath being a giant. I'm just saying, that perhaps these spies say, man, these guys look like descendants of the Nephilim. They look certainly like are. Well, Nephilim emphasize the, the most worrying part. We look like grasshoppers. Yeah. I mean, that's an overstatement. Yeah. And so we seem to them. And I'm a little doubtful that they had enough encountering with them to be treated that way. That's right. Th- yeah, that's right. Very good. So, so certainly... Uh, this hyperbole in describing themselves as appearing as grasshoppers in their sight. Um, where where are we? We're in, um, what, what verse was that? With, where are our grasshoppers? 30, 33. The land through which we are, have gone to spy it out is the land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. And so, so they're, they're, sar- they're exaggerating how, how bad it's going to be, but uh, convinced that they're unable to, to overtake this land in light of um, the obstacles. Absent from God's power in this. They're, they're not thinking of, of God's power. Okay, so now let's move into chapter 14. Let's look at what these 10 men and their report what this report does in its effect on the entire nation. Verse 1 of 14 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Just give me some words to describe what what they're doing here in these four verses. That not not only grumbling, but rebelling. Uh, this revolt. You got mutiny, I believe I heard someone say in verse four. Uh, again, they're, you know, God has told them why he's bringing them into the land. So they're questioning God. Why are you bringing us into the land? To fall by the sword? No, actually, in fact, he said much different about why he's bringing them into the land. Uh, ironically, their accusation is that these little ones will become prey. It's going to be these little ones who inherit the land and not them in light of their unbelief. So let's, let's continue then. Um, again, you see in your, in your, on your handout, um, the majority report and the testimony of the people is very much characterized by just this low view of God. God's not able. God, so, Moses is also in chapter 13, see whether they are weak or strong, thereby casting an element of doubt to the spies, which, so in other words, it might be, there might have been a, an element of unbelief in Moses himself that was carried on to his spies. So it's really just an interesting observation. Yeah, there, there, is a, um, there is a cross-reference in Deuteronomy 
that, that speaks of the motivation why, like, why the Lord would allow this, this quest to go on. And, um, I, and I think it was to strengthen their faith. And so, so perhaps even, it wasn't to just go, you know, evaluate how successful this would be of a battle if they were to match up well. Yeah, no, God, God is going to defeat the enemy. But despite that faith, Moses did, well, well, it was actually Caleb who walked by, Joshua that walked by faith. Yes. Moses, 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 remember, never entered the promised land because of his unbelief. Yeah. Uh, Dave, you I noticed that in the description, no one mentioned the Lord. I mean, Caleb was encouraging, but he didn't say the Lord will make it happen. And I, in considering that, you know, we don't have Moses interjecting. We don't have anybody saying, we don't know if they said anything at all. It's not recorded if they did. Mm. And I wonder why that's so. Yeah. And it seems that sometimes, maybe here, the Lord's divided. <laughs> um, he knows the test is for all the people, not just the leadership. Will the people remember the Lord in his power? Yes. Without being told yet again, because they've lived through it. Yeah, very good. So if, if the Lord's absent from their minds in verses 1 through 4, I very much is contrasted in verses 5 through 9 by, by these godly leaders. Verse 5, the Mos- Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Find verse eight to be a helpful cross-reference in interpreting what Caleb means in the last chapter when he's saying, we're, we're gonna overcome them. It's because if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us. Verse nine says, only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land for they are bread for us. Um, Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The lesson here, you know, when, when People are big. God is small. You know, that's the title of a book that so many of us have read. That's what the Israelites are doing. They've got big people, small God in their minds. And, and Caleb and Joshua are saying, and when God is big, people are small. Uh, if the Lord is with us, we will overcome them. Don't fear them. Fear God. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So they have actually accused the Israelites of unbelief here. And I believe that the Israelites' response is an attempt to say that they've just borne false witness against them because they seek to stone them for their accusation. So they're going to get some expert testimony on whether or not this was a false accusation because you see in verse, verse 10, um, verse 10, it says, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. 
and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So, so the Lord has, has spoken. And so then again, remember I told you in chapter 12, you have this pattern of um, grumbling. God responds. Moses intercedes and God hears. That's, that's what happens elsewhere. It's what happens in chapter 14 as well. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, Oh, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Um, so back to verse 12, the Lord says, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation uh, greater and mightier than they. Moses' intercession is, uh, his plea is, if you do that, um, it, others will speak lowly of you. They will, they will speak uh, they will blame it on your inability to give them the land. They're not, that your glory will not be on display if you strike them with this pestilence as you speak. Verse 17, he says, And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. And so he's saying, put your power on display by demonstrating mercy, by doing what you have said you would do. Even think of the language that he's using from Exodus 34 here. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. It's helpful here in this, these categories to recognize God's power is on display by demonstrating his mercy to his people. Uh, by showing this great steadfast love, he's demonstrating his power, as Moses points out here. So the Lord says in verse 20, he responds to Moses' intercession, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he was a different, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. A couple comments here real quick. You're seeing God relents, but God's, there's still consequences for their sin. So they're, they're um, punished for their sin, uh, but they're not annihilated here in light of their sin. Uh, and in fact, they... The, the uh, promises are going to be delayed here because now they're turning, we'll turn this car around kind of thing is what, what's going on here. They have turned around and, and they're headed back into the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Uh, back in verse 24, it spoke of Caleb as someone who has a different spirit and has followed me fully. 
As, as I read that, I think just look at everything you're reading here. What is the spirit of everyone else in, in this? The, the majority of you, the spirit is of unbelief. Yeah, and so you're just seeing the, this, this spirit of belief from Caleb. And, and he, um, he's this leader who leads well. And, um, and he's blessed for it. He will inherit the land. Um, we could say more about the, these, these next verses that, that take place, but uh, it's, it's just shocking to see how this chapter ends. Because again, you, you'd be tempted to see, okay, grumbling happens, Moses intercedes, God hears, uh, God judges, and this cycle that you think, what would often, what would you assume would happen after God judges? When God judges rebellion, what is, what is the cycle in judges? If you have rebellion, you know, then judgment, and then repentance often. Okay, so in here, this painfully on display here is rebellion. Um, God responds. Moses intercedes. God, God judges and the people respond with more rebellion. So, so verses um, 39 and following, we'll just end w- with this. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, oh, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord? They, they have been commanded to, to turn back. Uh, verse uh, 25, they were, to, they were to set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. But here they're saying, no, no, we, we, God promised, we've, we sinned, we've mourned overnight, now we're ready, let's go. Verse 41, Moses says, no, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. So these individuals that, that seek to take the land by their own power are destroyed. Uh, we jumped over some of the other judgment that's already been on display. These 10 spies for their unfaithful report, for their unbelief. They are struck with God's displeasure. They are killed um, by uh, an immediate plague. Um, so God's judgment is poured out on their sin, even at the same time that he, God demonstrates his mercy to them in their unbelief. Um, Israel still does not take God seriously, is what we're seeing and painfully on display in these chapters. And there's so many reasons too, but they're characterized by unbelief. They're filled with unbelief. And so, so they don't take God seriously. This I mean, it's stronger because it won't be cured. God, God gave them ten, ten chances. Right. And they just never get. Yeah. And then, and <clears throat> yes. we also have like repetition of this complaining or grumbling. It was about small things, you know, very small, and then very it good. built up, and eventually it got to the point where it infected the whole thing, and then they couldn't do what, you know, God wanted them to do. 
in something big. So, like they, you know, they 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 should have uh, yeah, trusted the Lord to uh, to to do that with uh, and uh, Joshua and Caleb. They uh, were able to inherit the land because yes. of that. They were mm-hmm. faithful. Very good. It's always faithful remnant, and that's on display here, even uh, with with Caleb and Joshua. Uh, let, let's close in in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this narrative, this this history of Israel. May we learn from it. May we not fail in the ways that the Israelites did. May we take you seriously. May uh, a right view of God, a high view of God inf- um, inform every area of our lives. May we believe your promises. May we obey your promises. May we obey your word and um, God, give you praise for your many blessings. Um, the people failed to rightly identify you in, in these blessings. They failed to rightly recognize your, your perfect power, your ability to fulfill your promises. They failed to recognize your goodness in the midst of these promises as well. And they're punished for it. So God, may we uh, delight in who you are. May we delight in what you've done. May we delight in what you're going to do. Um, May we be a people of faith who, um, informed by your promises, may we just walk in conviction uh, in light of uh, the confidence of being in a right relationship with you. So, God, we thank you and praise you for the time that we could spend together in, in this book. And as we go into the, this next worship hour, may you be glorified through everything that takes place. As we sing, as we pray, as we read the word, as the word is preached, may, may you be glorified in it all. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.